Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Jonathan Neville back on the show. This time we're going to talk about his latest book, Infinite Goodness. It's a little bit about Jonathan Edwards, who was an early uh, preacher in the 1700s, and how he relates to the Book of Mormon. So it's going to be a very fun conversation. You won't want to miss it, and uh, you probably want to check out his book, like I said, Infinite Goodness. So check out our conversation. All right, welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have Jonathan Edward Neville on the show. I don't normally introduce people by their middle name, but I have a special reason for doing that today. Jonathan, for those who didn't uh, didn't see the first interview, give us a little bit about your background. Okay, well, my name's Jonathan Neville, and again, I'm happy to be here on Gospel Tangents. Um, but my background is by training and in profession, I'm a lawyer, but I'm retired from that. And I've also been a businessman and educator, but uh, in the last seven to ten years or so, I've been doing kind of a deep dive into church history and Book of Mormon topics. And I, so I've written several books, none of which I had planned to do, but there's so much interesting information that I've kind of stumbled across that I, I've written these books about them. And so it's been uh, just an exciting thing for me to be able to talk about some new perspectives on church history and Book of Mormon topics. Book of Mormon translation, Book of Mormon setting, uh, whatever happened to the golden plates, those kind of topics. So today, I, you want me to talk about why? My yeah, why name? did I introduce you okay. by your middle name? <laughs> All right. My middle name is Edward, and uh, the topic we're going to talk about today is Jonathan Edwards. And you were not named after him, right? Or well, I don't know for sure, because my mother was from Connecticut, Okay. and there's no Edwards in our family name, really, and, and she was familiar with Jonathan Edwards because he was from Connecticut. Hmm. And so whether she named me after him, had me him in mind when she named me, I don't know. She's passed away. I haven't been able to ask her yet. <laughs> I will so, eventually. But that was a long time ago. When when did he live, died? Okay, approximate he was, dates he, there? Yeah, he was born in 1703, about 100 years before Joseph Smith. Okay. And he died in 1758. He was the, when he died, he was the president of Princeton University. And he, there had been a smallpox epidemic, essentially. And so they wanted all the students and faculty to take the vaccine. And there, a lot of people were resisting it. So to show that it was safe and effective, he took it himself. But he got an overdose and died from it. And so it was not safe. For him it was not. No, it was not. But it did save a lot of other lives, of course. But And so you said he died in 1756? 1758. 1758. Yeah, so that was before the revolution. Before the revolution. Did it get it? It must have gotten a little bit better because I know George Washington required his troops to get vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. Well, and smallpox, of course, decimated the Native Americans as many as some historians say 97% of the Native Americans were killed from smallpox. And so it was a continuing scourge even among the colonists. And they had this the vaccine where they would give a small dose, but it was essentially live vaccine or live uh, whatever virus. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, you would get a little bit, you'd get sick, but then you'd build a natural immunity. And so, but they didn't have the technology we have today to make vaccines that didn't kill people sometimes. Right. And in his case, you know, it was a tragic uh, death. But, mm, yeah. So he was only, I think he was around 55 years old when he died. Wow. But during that time, he was, he started off as uh, going to Yale University. He married the daughter of the founder of Yale University. And oh, he, so the Yale-Princeton must have been quite the rivalry. Though. Well, Princeton, he didn't even want to go to Princeton. Oh, wow. And they prevailed on him. He was actually, at the time, a missionary and a minister to the, the Indians in western Massachusetts. Hmm. And they wanted him to become to go and be the president at Princeton, and he didn't want to, but they finally talked him into going down to doing that. Because they're both but, Ivy League schools. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think the rivalry back then was like it is today. <laughs> In fact, he was the youngest commencement speaker ever at Harvard. Oh wow! And and that was a big, a big deal at the time because there was a Harvard Yale rivalry, mm -hmm. and the people at Harvard didn't want him to come. But he was so uh, prolific and well known, and and some historians say that he had the highest IQ of any American born ever. Hmm. And so they wanted him to come speak at Harvard and. They did. He, they managed to have that happen. But He was kind of the Billy Graham of his day? The Billy Graham, but also he was uh, considered a superior intellect, 
generally. Mm -hmm. He started off as a scientist. His first papers were, were naturalist papers that were published in the UK. He did some studies of, boy, now I can't remember exactly. It seems to me it was uh, kind of a microbiology thing, but I'm not positive what he wrote about. But he spent a lot of time studying Newtonian physics and that kind of thing as well. Mm -hmm. He wrote about those topics as well. Oh, wow. But he became, uh, he graduated from Yale with his master's degree when he was 19 years old. Wow. And he was fluent in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. He had to defend his dissertation in Latin, both speaking and writing. Hmm. And uh, he was very well educated, to say the least. His grandfather was a well-known minister in Connecticut. And so he ended up, he, he preached, I think, in New York for a while, but he ended up working with his grandfather. And when his grandfather died, he took over that, uh, ch that church in New England, in, well, in Connecticut. And he eventually became part of the, the First Great Awakening with George Whitfield, primarily the two of them. And uh, he was a lot of, um, I, I found a lot of people in Utah, I've never heard of him. <laughs> but, I, until I met you, I hadn't heard of yeah, him. Yeah, but in New England, he's well known. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things in American literature that in high school people often study is this famous sermon about uh, the angry God. Now, I can't remember the name of it, but it, I could look it up real quick if you want. But it was a sermon where it was all fire and brimstone, and he talked about um, God holding you like a spider over a fire and that type of thing. And that was his famous sermon. It kind of represented the, the Great Awakening. And it was a text in very common in high school um, English lit courses. Hmm. And so you, often when I bring it up to people who have uh, graduated from university and maybe have a little more familiarity, they say, oh, he's the one that wrote that sermon about the angry God. And I say, yeah, he did write that, but he wrote a lot of other things too. He wrote several uh, long uh, sermons and, and as well as books, entire books. Most of those he wrote when he was a missionary to the Indians in the 1850s or 1750s. Well, very good. Yeah, I know... Uh I read in your book, Stephen Harper had referenced this, this talk you're, you're mentioning, so I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that in just a minute. So yeah. so how does Jonathan Edwards relate to the Book of Mormon? Okay, well, this is an interesting Especially story. since he was born 100 years before Joseph. Yeah, Smith. yeah. So the, how this all got started is I was curious in my work on the Book of Mormon to, um, there, there's a debate in the Book of Mormon about whether Joseph translated it or not and whether it, it was uh, translated by, um, or, or whether Joseph Smith read words on a stone that were put there by someone we don't know, a spiritual essence, which I call the mysterious incognito spiritual translator, the mist. And just for shorthand. I thought it was Sith. Yeah, Sith is the stone in the hat. Oh, okay. But the question of who put the words on the stone became an issue. Because if he just read words off the stone in the hat and didn't use the plates, and didn't use Hiram and Thummim, as some scholars say today, uh, then there, these words appeared on a stone and a hat. And I actually have a replica of the stone I didn't think to bring. Oh, dang it. <laughs> it's the same size as someone made an exact one, you know, 3D printed it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I've got one. But um, it doesn't work, though. <laughs> <laughs> but so the theory is that he just put the stone in a hat and words appeared on the stone and he read the words. And you don't like that theory? Well, it's not a question of liking it. To me, it's implausible. Okay. Now, and but I'm fine if people want to believe that. I, I don't. I'm not trying to tell anybody not to believe it. I, for me, it doesn't work. Let's put it that way. And I think Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were pretty clear that that is not how they did it. But that's a, kind of another topic. Hmm. Although you we know could what? Get I think that. we need to get into that because I okay. don't think we covered that enough last time. Okay. Because you have some real issues with the stone in the hat. Yeah, right? I do. Well, let's let's come back to it after we talk about Jonathan Edwards. And oh, because, by the way, I should also mention, yeah. and maybe I should take a break and go grab it. But one of my listeners uh, sent me a uh, replica of the Urim and Thummim. Oh, really? And I have it in my basement. I uh, could go grab I it. I would like to see that. Yeah. So, it, it, the weird thing is, like, it doesn't fit over your eyes. Like, right. you'd have to be a giant because they're like. Yeah, they were. Know. They were. They were built for someone that by figuring out the, the width of the face, would be about nine feet tall. Right. 
at which there's lots of accounts of nine-foot-tall skeletons in North America. But <laughs> that's, that is a little bit of a tangent <laughs> where we're talking about tangents, exactly. right? Exactly. We've okay. got to get into all this fun. Well, stuff. I'd love to talk about the this, this stone and the hat a little bit more, but for me it was an issue because when I was reading what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said, they always said that Joseph translated the plates, even the engravings on the plates, by means of the Urim and Thummim. And so I thought, well, I like to... My basic philosophy is that I believe what Joseph and Oliver said. And if, it, if what they said contradicts what other people said, then I tend to think, well, the other people had a different agenda or observed something different or misinterpreted whatever. But I stick with what Joseph and Oliver said. And so my, doesn't Bushman say that he used, that Joseph used the Urim and Thummim for the last 116 pages, but... I can, and, and looking at my replica, I can see why that would be a pain in the butt to use. Yeah. And uh, so Bushman says the rest of the time he did the stone in the hat. Right. So and for what we have is the well, stone let, in the hat. Well, let me give a caveat there. Bushman doesn't really say one way or the other. Bushman is reporting what other people said. And so, because I've talked with him about some of these things, the, the thing to, to be clear on is when people, the difference between what someone says and what really happened. And so if, for example, Richard wrote in his book that he used the, the stone in the hat, but he was relying on what other people said. So it's just like if, I, had, I run into people all the time and said, well, Joe Smith used the stone in the hat. And I said, well, how do you know? You weren't there, right? Mm -hmm. They're relying on what someone else said. So I go back to the original statements to try to understand them as if I was hearing them in court. And doesn't, I want, doesn't Richard Bushman do the same thing? Not really. No? He, he accepts it pretty much on its face because he doesn't, he, and I have a whole, um, I did a whole analysis of that segment of Rustone Rolling to show what he wrote and then the, the references that he didn't include and a different way to interpret it. So I have a different, uh, I guess, uh, a different way to frame all those statements. And I've shown that he could have done it a little more objectively. This is one of the issues, we're, we're kind of digressing here, but this is one of the issues with historians that I never really had understood until I got into this. Because they'll often report things as fact, which are just theory. And I'm used to more of a courtroom approach where you say a witness says something, you don't just take it on its face. You, you cross-examine the witness if you can, of course, dead people you can't cross-examine. Exactly. But you can still look at the, at the issues of uh, motive, um, opportunity. Were they actually there? Did they report what they saw and, and add their own inferences to it? Which happens all the time. I've given examples. For example, if there's a, a car accident, policeman comes up and says, well, what happened? And the guy says, well, this blue car ran the red light. And, and if you write that down, okay, that's a fact, right? But the lawyer would say, well, were you there when it happened? And he goes, yeah, I was there. Did you see it? Well, I didn't really see it, but I looked up when I heard the crash. And so he didn't really observe what he said he saw. He made an inference and reported it as a fact. And that happens all the time. That's why we have cross-examination. And so my own interpretation, and it's a long discussion to go through each of the witnesses, is that I think David Whitmer and Emma reported what they observed, and they inferred that it was a translation, but it wasn't. And I don't think we have time to go through all the detail of that, but getting back to the stone on the hat thing, I think that, in my view, Joseph used the stone on the hat, which was a common practice in New England at the time, apparently, to demonstrate how he was doing the translation, because he had been forbidden from showing the Urim and Thummim or the plates to anybody. And, and, and that, you know, people wonder, or at least I wondered, why would the Lord tell him not to do that? And why would he say the Lord told me not to do it unless he had a specific reason? And I think one of the reasons was to explain why he had to do a demonstration instead. The other interesting thing about this whole stone in the hat uh, theory is that no one wrote down what Joseph dictated on these sessions. And so we have no idea if what he he actually dictated during those sessions is actually in the Book of Mormon today. In other words, David Whitmer, Emma, they never said, well, when he was looking at the stone in the head, he dictated Alma chapter 7, you know. Oh, I see. So we have no idea. It's just, it's a huge assumption everybody has made all along. And so I pointed out, you know, <laughs> 
we're assuming that what he dictated on those sessions with the stone on the hat is in the Book of Mormon, but we have no way of knowing that. And so there's no, what I call a chain of custody. The other thing you mentioned is um, when, when Richard talked about in, in Rust Stone Rolling about the translation with the, the stone on the hat during the Book of Mormon we have today and use the Urim and Thummim during the um, 116 pages. That comes partly from David Whitmer who said that and Emma said that. But the problem with both of that is we don't know for sure whether Emma was a scribe during the post 116 pages. I think she was for part of it. Oh, because I think, because have we found any of her handwriting? No, no. Oh, so why do you think she was then? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is that the printer said she was. Her, her handwriting's on the manuscript. David Whitmer said she was. On the printer's manuscript? Yeah, on the original manuscript. Oh. And so. And then also, before Oliver Cowdery arrived, Joseph had been translating for about four months, I think it was. And so, and we don't know because the whole book of Mosiah and the first few chapters of Alma are missing from the original manuscript, which would have been the part he was translating before Oliver Cowdery arrived. And that was because the, it was damaged when they put it in right. the cornerstone and water got in. Yeah. We only got like 28% of the original manuscript. Exactly. And, and unfortunately, all of the Book of Mosiah and the first few chapters of Alma are missing. I, th I don't remember exactly. It's like Alma chapter 6 or 7, something like that, is the first uh, part of the original manuscript that we have today that was translated. Because remember, First Nephi through Words of Mormon was translated in Fayette. Right. So that was later. Yeah. So in my, when I did this analysis... Well, let's make sure people are clear on that. So... Joseph translated the Book of Lehi, which was covered the same time period as 1 Nephi through Messiah chapter 2? Well, or chapter 1. That's one an issue two. of whether it's, we have our chapter 1 today is originally chapter 3. Yeah. Which is what probably heard. what it is. So it would have been through King Benjamin, let's say. Right. And so, so Joseph didn't retranslate that. He just started with what is our Messiah chapter 1, but a lot of scholars think it's Messiah chapter 3. Right. And then through the rest of the end of the Book of Mormon, and then after that was done, he went back and translated the small plates, which was first and second Nephi, Jacob, and words... Omni well, and Enos. And, yeah. yeah. And then words of Mormon, I guess. Yeah, at least, at least part of the words of Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and this, you know, if we're going to talk about that a little bit, just to, to make sure people understand, he... Basically, he had translated the abridged plates that he got from the stone box of Moroni in, in Harmony, Pennsylvania. And that was the Book of Lehi, as you mentioned, all the way through the title page. And he said the title page was on the last leaf of the plates. Then, when he was in Fayette, he, he didn't translate anything from the abridged plates. He translated the original plates of Nephi, and it, which was First Nephi through um, at least part of the Words of Mormon. And that leads up to this whole issue of the two sets of plates, which I think we may have discussed before, but I'll just summarize it real quickly for this. This is the idea that when Joseph Smith got the plates out of Moroni's stone box, all it was was the abridged plates. And like the title page said, it was an abridgment of the plates of, of Nephi, or the, the people of Nephi, and a record of the abridgment of the record of the people of uh, Jared. And that's all. It didn't say there was no original plates included in that title page. And so other than a sealed portion. And so Joseph took those abridged plates down to Harmony, translated all of them. And when he got to the end, he and Oliver said, okay, we got to the, the end of these plates. Should we go back and retranslate the book of Lehi that had been lost with 116 pages? And that's when the Lord told him in DNC 10 today, he said, no, don't go retranslate that. Instead, you have to translate the plates of Nephi. And in my view, he didn't have the plates of Nephi at that point. That's why the Lord told him, you've got to translate the plates of Nephi. In fact, in verse in DNC 9, when Oliver Cowdery had tried to translate and was unable to, the Lord said, well, don't worry, just continue with this record, and then I have other records that you can help Joseph translate. And right in the very next section, section 10, it, it identifies what those other records were, which was the plates of Nephi. So before Joseph left Harmony, he asked the Lord what to do with the plates, because he didn't want to haul them. 
And, you know, in case someone tried to steal him like it happened when he went to Armenia the first time. And so the Lord said, well, give him to this messenger. And so he did. He gave the, the abridged place to a messenger who he said later was one of the three Nephites. So he gave the, the abridged plates to this messenger. And then David Whitmer came down from Fayette to pick him and, and Oliver up to go back to the Whitmer farm up in Fayette. And on the way back, they passed this guy on the side of the road. And David Whitmer offered to give him a ride up to, uh, well, first he said, hello, how you doing? It's hot today. They had a little conversation. And he said, would you like a ride? And the guy said, no, I'm going to Cumorah. And David Whitmer, remember, that was the first time he ever heard the word Cumorah. Because he, he knew the area. He was a farmer in the area. He'd never heard of Cumorah before. And so the guy left, and he asked Joseph who that was. And he said, well, that was the messenger who had the plates. And he was one of the three Nephites. Hmm. And so they continued on. They went up to Fayette. And then this same messenger who went, took the abridged plates to back to the repository in Cumorah, and there he got the small plates of Nephi and brought those to Fayette. And that's why Joseph translated those plates in Fayette. And there's, a, there's lots of reasons why this scenario is important. But relevant to what we're talking about today, it shows that Joseph was actually translating plates. He had to have the right plates to translate them. He wasn't just reading off a stone in the hat. If, and in fact, I've, I've, <laughs> I remember I was at BYU Education Week one time. And we had, a, I won't say who it is, but he was just talking about church history. And he said, well, Joseph never used the plates. They were under a cloth or out in the woods. He used a stone in the hat. And he said, but Joseph said something that we don't understand. He said that the title page was on the last leaf of the plates. We have no idea how he knew that because he wasn't using the plates. <laughs> and I thought, that's exactly backwards. I mean, you know. And so, and the thing is, in DNC 10, when the Lord tells Joseph to translate the engravings on the plates of Nephi, he didn't say, we're going to give you some different words to read on the stone, you know. So the stone in the hat doesn't fit any of the scriptural narrative at all. Joseph and Oliver never said anything about using a stone, a seer stone that he found in a well to translate the Book of Mormon. Never even alluded to it. In fact, here's another example. When, when Oliver Cowdery rejoined the church, in 18, I'm going to say 1853, somewhere in there. And Reuben Miller wrote the account. And he said, um, he, he bore his testimony once again of the Book of Mormon. And he said, Joseph translated it with Urim and Thummim. And Jenny Riggin didn't write it. Solomon Spaulding didn't write it. But when he was doing that, he had that seer stone in his pocket. He had it with him. And all he had to do was pull it out and say, this is the stone that Joseph Smith translated with. But he didn't. He never even referred to it. He talked about the Nephite interpreters. So this whole idea of the stone and the hat thing, to me, doesn't make any sense, and it contradicts the narrative. It, it actually was first published in, in a fairly comprehensive form in the anti-Mormon book called Mormonism Unveiled, 1834. E.D. Howe. E.D. Howe's book. And he talked about the stone and the hat as a scenario and kind of ridiculed it. And so now I read it in the scholarly works among our, some of our leading LDS scholars, and it's just, okay, if you can believe that if you want, you know, but it doesn't make sense to me. So what this all led to was, I wanted to know if Joseph Smith, well, let me back up. And there's another strain of thought that Joseph Smith could not have translated the Book of Mormon himself because of the vocabulary. Oh, yeah, Brian Hales. Brian Hales, but also, um, well, there's a few others where they said, you know, okay, the biblical stuff we can kind of understand because he, he said he studied the Bible, right? But there's, I made a list of 700 words that are not in the Bible that are in the Book of Mormon, and some of them are pretty elaborate, you know, sophisticated terminology. I think Brian's done the same. Yeah, he has. And so... Brian is more of a stone-in-the-hat type guy, though, as right. I recall. definitely. So he thinks that those words must have appeared on the stone. Since I don't find that even credible or plausible, I, I thought, well, there had to be a way for Joseph to acquire that lexicon before he translated the Book of Mormon. But either way, even if you believe it in the Urim and Thummim, don't you imagine that the words appeared on the, the two crystals in the Urim and Thummim? No, what I think happened, and I, th this is a topic of another new book that's coming out oh, soon. Preview, huh? A, a little preview. And well, 
what we, my co-author and I think happened is the Urimathoma would have given him like a literal definition. For example, um, when they did the Rosetta Stone and they were trying to, to create the uh, two forms of Egyptian and the Greek, you can go on the website and see what the literal translation of the words are, but in, in English, it doesn't make sense. You have to reformulate it and, and convert it into grammar that we can understand. Plus, you have a word that has a, an ancient word that has multiple meanings in English. So you have to choose among those. We do that today. When, we, when I lived in China, we would go up to a Chinese sign and put our little phone on, and it would give us the English interpretation, but it would flip around and have multiple words for one Chinese symbol. And that's what I think the Urimathoma would do. And it would, it would give Joseph sort of a literal translation of, well, he said, he, the first thing he did after he got the plates and went down to Harmony, he copied the characters, right? And he translated the characters. So he was translating these characters with the, by means of the Urimathoma, he said. And so the Urimathoma was giving him kind of a, a glossary or a dictionary, let's say. But it wasn't really conveying a meaning that made sense to um, Joseph's peers. So he had, to he had to actually translate the characters into his own English using his own lexicon, it, as the DNC one says, after the manner of his language. And that's what I think he did. So it, I guess we're digressing a little from Jonathan Edwards, but <laughs> in, in, okay. in my view, Joseph Smith was prepared from a young age to become the prophet and translator. And that's why he had the leg surgery. I don't know if we've talked about this before. A little bit, but let's do it again. Okay. So he because there's you got some big issues with Brian Hales and you know I love talking about different perspectives. Yeah, so. sure. So the well, I, you know, I, come to think of it, I haven't really ever directly engaged Brian Hales on this topic. We've talked about other things, but mm -hmm. anyway. So the uh, when he had the leg surgery, lots of people were getting sick. Other members of his family were getting sick, but he's the one that got the leg infection, and it was a life-threatening situation. And he ended up having the famous leg surgery. Everybody talks about it because he refused to drink alcohol, right? Right. But to me, that was a, a very minor tangent, let's say. The, the real reason for that leg surgery was to incapacitate Joseph Smith at a young age, to give him kind of this near-death experience. So that, that's when he became a religious seeker more than the rest of the, his family. But also, it incapacitated him for several years. He couldn't work on the farm. His parents had to carry him around. He, even when they moved to Palmyra, he was still on crutches. So he had that period of time to, to really ponder, become a religious seeker, and start reading Christian literature. And one of the things that I came across in this process is Uncle Jesse took him to the, the coast down in Massachusetts near their family, ancestral family home. Near this Salem. is while he's still injured? Yeah, right shortly after the surgery. So that because they felt like if you're near the coast, it's more healing, and so which it is. That's why a lot of people come to my house up in Oregon. <laughs> we have a lot of people who retire there because of that idea that the sea coast is is more healthy, and and I certainly feel like it is. Mm. That's a, another tangent. We have a lot of tangents here. <laughs> it's appropriately named show. I know it's awesome. I love it. But anyway, so his uncle Jesse took him down there. And Jesse became famous later because Joseph wrote him a letter about the restoration. And, and Jesse said, this was before Joseph had translated the, the Book of Mormon, about that time frame. As I recall, it was, uh, I don't remember the date of it now, but it was around that early time period. And Jesse made the comment that it sounded like it was written by a prophet, this letter that Joseph wrote. When, when Emma said supposedly he couldn't even write a well-worded letter, right. which was a a kind of a ridiculous apologetic thing that she said. And, and there's other reasons why I say that. But he, one of the ones was he wrote to his uncle Jesse. And Jesse completely rejected the, this restoration because he was a very strict um, Christian. I don't know if he's a minister, but so the point is when he took Joseph Smith down to Massachusetts, I was researching, well, what would a boy Joseph's age read in Massachusetts? And I came across these four sermons for young men uh, written by a minister whose last name was Dean. And I read through those, and there's a lot of this non-biblical Book of Mormon language in those sermons. And they, they kind of come out. I, I don't have time to give examples, but it, it 
gave me the idea of, well, maybe Joseph was being educated by the Lord through Jesse and other uh, people in how to articulate this ancient Nephite record in modern Christian terminology. And so then I started thinking, well, I made this list of 700 words, right? And I wanted to find all of them because some of them, for example, um, Royal Skousen says were early modern English and Joseph wouldn't have known them and that type of thing. So that was on my mind too. So I, I started looking through the Palmyra newspapers from the early or late 1820s. And sure enough, there was a lot of terminology in there. On my list of 700 words, I found maybe, let's say, 25 or 30, something like that. Okay, I just want to make sure our time period is right. Joseph was born in 1805. 1805. And he had his leg surgery. How old was he? He was around six or seven. So, yeah. so 1811? 1811, roughly, yeah. Okay. And so he's hanging out with his Uncle Jesse, 1812, 1830. Well, right in that same time. He was only there for six months oh, okay. in, in, at the coast. And then he came back to Vermont. And that's when there were the accounts of his mother or father. In fact, there's a church film about uh, Joseph Smith that shows his father carrying him on his back as they're running around. So he, he just wasn't able to, to walk with that leg. He had that limp the, his entire life afterwards. But at least at that time, he was still unable to, to play with the kids and all that. So what's he going to do? You know, right. I, I've had some critics say, well, he was too young to be reading. But not if you read what uh, Parley P. Pratt wrote about, how, how young he was when he was reading the Bible, like six or seven years old. Um, I think it was Eliza R. Snow had memorized long passages of scriptures when she was seven or eight years old, too. So that was a common thing in their day. Okay. And, and it's hard for us to relate to because our kids have video games and TV and everything else. They had the Bible to study in school, even. In fact, here's, an, here's a fun tangent. You know the book, um, uh, The Late War, the, the book about the War of 1812 that was written in the biblical style? Okay. And some of the critics say, well, Joseph plagiarized the late war, right? Mm -hmm. Especially but, in the Alma parts, right? The war yeah, parts. The war parts, yeah. yeah. Uh, which I think is ridiculous. We can talk about that, too, if you want. But the interesting thing about the late war, it was written in the biblical style because they wanted children to read it because they were familiar with the Bible. And they figured, well, this is a way for them to become educated in biblical language. And, and the reason, it, it was like a, a book about 9-11 uh, would have been 20 years ago. Because the War of 1812 took place right in that area of Vermont and northern New York. In fact, there's a town called Pulteneyville just north of Palmyra that was invaded by the British. They bombarded it, you know, they stole stuff. And there were lots of veterans of the war who lived in Palmyra when Joseph was a, a boy there. In fact, the cemetery that his brother Alvin was buried in was named after a veteran of the War of 1812. Is it 1812 or 18? Yeah, 1812. Yeah, 1812. And so... The War of 1812 lasted until 1814. Yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> That's right. It's, and so, and it was very vivid when Joseph moved to Palmyra. Mm -hmm. And so, if he hadn't read that book, it would have been surprising. But one as interesting aspect of it is in the, uh, the there, there are a few editions of it, but one of the editions of the late war had an endorsement by Samuel Mitchell, who Joseph sent um, Martin Harris to, to go get an approval of the translation, right? The characters. And Mitchell endorsed the book because it was written in the biblical style and it would help the morals of the kids and that type of thing. So that's kind of the environment that they were in. It was a very rich biblical environment to the point where people were writing books to try to imitate the biblical style. And if you read the Palmyra newspapers from the late 1820s, it's, it's very interesting there because there were a lot of religious articles in there. And, you know, they would have sermons and things in there published. And so as I was going through my list of 700 words, I kept coming across um, references or, or uh, terminology and phrases and things that were from Jonathan Edwards. And I thought, well, I don't know how Jonathan Edwards has anything to do with this. And I had known a little bit about Jonathan Edwards because of my family's background in Connecticut and some study that I had done of this. But then I, I, saw, I had this idea of looking at what was for sale in Palmyra in the bookstore. And there's a list of, I don't remember how many, let's say 50 books that they would publish week after week, you know, these are on sale. And one of them just said Edwards eight volumes. 
And I had never connected that to Jonathan Edwards until I kept accumulating these references to Edwardsian terminology. And then I said, wait a minute, that might have been Jonathan Edwards. And I looked it up and sure enough, Jonathan Edwards had a, an eight volume set of his works published in 1808 that was commonly for sale. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, now that could be really interesting to go through, right? And, but I, and there's a database at Yale University that they say has all of Jonathan Edwards' works in it. But I, would, I wouldn't find some of the things that I, some of the terminology in that database. And so I thought, well, I'm going to examine this 1808 edition. And so I went on eBay and I bought a, an original 1808 set of the eight volumes. And but I, that was pricey. Uh, well, pricey. It was like $1,000 or something. Oh, my gosh. That doesn't seem that pricey to me. <laughs> but this is, I brought you one to show you. Oh, wow. So this is volume three. And it, this actually was from the Diocese of uh, Ohio. <laughs> that They put it on eBay. But I got these original 1808 books. It's, it says the works of uh, President Edwards. Yeah. And it says the President Edwards, again, because he was president of um, Princeton University. Wow. But... Very cool. Yeah, these are really cool. And and it has uh, the, uh, this is volume three of eight, but it's published in 1808. Uh -huh. And so I started, well, I realized at that point, this had to be what they were referring to, the eight volumes of Edwards that everyone knew about, the very commonly known Jonathan Edwards was. And the reason I got these is I found that, uh, I've always found that there's databases, like I, I could find this on Amazon. They had the 1808, someone digitized it, and I bought an Amazon version on the Kindle. But I Which found- Which is easier to search. It's easier to search, but it also has errors. Every, oh. every single digitized database I've looked at has errors in it, transcription hmm. errors. And I found a few in, in this Amazon version of this. So I always go back to- Don't they use OCR for those? They use OCR, oh, but it still makes mistakes. Yeah. yeah, okay, that makes sense. And it's surprising, you would think. But you know, this is an old type font, maybe it's hard for OCR to get. It, it's close to perfect, but every so often there'll be mm -hmm. some small, small variations. Plus, I found, as I was reading in these, um, I haven't read all of them in <laughs> all eight volumes, but I read quite a bit of it. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because there's, um, you can see the relation. For example, one of the, the sermons we might talk about is uh, men are naturally God's enemies. And the an one actual man is an enemy to God? Yeah, that's all in here. <laughs> but the sermon right before that is about the trials of Joseph. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Joseph of Egypt. Joseph of Egypt. And so I read through that, and it has a lot of Book of Mormon terminology in that sermon as well. Mm. So I can see how, I haven't taken the time to do this, because I'm hoping that some energetic young scholar will do this so I can get back to my artwork. <laughs> but it's, I, don't, I don't think Joseph sat and read all eight volumes of this. But I do think he read lots of it. And, and there's, there's, there's a proximity of the sermons in here that is interesting. Because some of them are very sound very much like the Book of Mormon. He talks in here about the restoration of the church in the latter days. There's a lot of terminology we're familiar with that's right in these books. Hmm. And they were right on sale in that Palmyra bookstore when Joseph Smith was and there. And was he, was Jonathan Edwards a proponent that the Native Americans were descendants of the Lost Ten Tribes? Yes, uh, pretty much. I don't, I haven't seen him really talk about that. But it is interesting you bring that up because... It was common of the day. It was common in the day, but his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., this is an interesting little anecdote. I don't think I talked about it too much in here. He, Jonathan Edwards wanted him to learn the Native American languages. And so he sent him to downriver, up the Susquehanna River, kind of, to live with the Indians for a while. He had, actually, I should back up. When, when Edwards was a missionary to the Indians, he was living in their village. And his, his children became friends with the Indians, went to school with them and stuff. Mm -hmm. So they kind of learned the language that way. But he wanted him to really get immersed in it. So he sent him with some other missionaries to another Indian village. And, of course, Edwards was training all his kids in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And his son wrote a, a small book about how Hebrew 
was, or the Indian languages were based on Hebrew. And he found all these connections between the Indian languages that he was learning and, and living among and the Hebrew. And he sent it to George Washington. And George Washington, Jonathan Edwards Jr. did, sent it to George Washington. And George Washington wrote back and said, well, this is very interesting, but I'm not a linguist. But I know this guy in Germany who's a linguist that would be very interested in this. You ought to write to him. And so there was a, there was a whole effort to connect the languages of the Native Americans with Hebrew, as well as their customs. So they, you know, I don't, I don't remember. I These are Indians in Pennsylvania at the time, right? Western, Western so Massachusetts. So would they be Iroquois? Well, it was, it was Western Massachusetts primarily. Okay. Yeah, there were several tribes. I, I'm trying to remember um, Mo. There, there's a long name for one of the tribes that I don't have off the top of my head. Okay. I'd have to look it up. I'm thinking Mohawks or Mohicans were in that area. Well, those seven nations, yeah, there were those among those. The specific tribes that he went to, I don't remember. I'd have to look into that. Mm -hmm. I could look into it pretty easily. It's right here, but... It's something that your listeners can research. <laughs> or we could put it in the notes or something, right. you know. But it, it's, it, it was an interesting little thing. Now, of course, some modern scholars say, well, he didn't really understand Hebrew well enough to make that connection or, or whatever. But the point is that Jonathan Edwards' son made a direct connection between the Indian languages that he thought were based on Hebrew because of these connections. And, you know, I'm not a linguist, I can't say. But. I need to get Brian Stubbs on. Um, yeah, he's, he's I know. got uh, said that there's some Hebrew ties with Uto-Aztecan, right. but that's like Ute, Paiute, kind of right. southwest United States. So it's very different from the Northeast. Oh, he's, he's done the work on the Northeastern. And he's, oh, he has? He just hasn't published it yet. Oh. I've talked to him about that. He has, he has some really interesting work on that. <laughs> So know, Brian lives in like the four corners. Area. I, know. <laughs> I know. I hate Zoom interviews, but I'm yeah, to. yeah, and it'd be interesting to talk to him about that. I don't know if he's looked into what Jonathan Edwards Jr. wrote, but it is an interesting book. Mm -hmm. But it, that gives you kind of a flavor of how they were seeing those connections. I just I don't remember. If so can you can you tell us this? Does Does Brian have? Some sort of a tie with these northeastern Indians. Yeah, yeah, totally. With Hebrew. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. But you need to talk to him about that. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I, well, I'll talk to him about that. That's all I can say. Because yeah. I don't want to, you know, steal his thunder. Well, that, or even say something that he would disagree with, because yeah. I totally defer to him on that stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm only saying that Jonathan Edwards' son right. was a real proponent of it. And Edwards, of course, talked a lot about the Indians. And there was a, a famous missionary to the Indians named David Brainerd, who was a, um, I, don't, I think he was a graduate of Yale. He might have got kicked out of Yale, but he was a little bit iconoclastic. But he went up to live with the Indians and kind of become like them. And he lived with them for a long time. And he wrote, a, a, his journal was fairly extensive. And then towards the, he came to visit the Edwards family and stayed with them for a few months, and he ended up dying there. And when he did, he gave his journals to Jonathan Edwards to kind of have or keep, and Edwards published those. He edited them, added some commentary, and published them, and they were Edwards' best-known work. It, it became kind of a missionary manual for Christian missionaries for 100 years or so. And so, and it was published, I think, in the 1740s, 1750s, somewhere in there. And it's fascinating to read through that. I have that on my Kindle as well. Hmm. And it's, it's not part of the eight volumes. The eight volumes have some references to it. So it's a separate volume. And I haven't found that that was being sold in the bookstore. But it was so common. It, it was a widely held book by Christian missionaries. I, I'm pretty convinced that Joseph read that too, or at least part of it. But he it talked about his labor with the missionary, or the, his missionary labor with the Indians. And that's one I highly recommend. <laughs> you know, people have asked me, why don't you do a book on Jonathan Edwards for LDS people? And I thought, yeah, okay. Well, that's what infinite goodness is all about. Well, right? that's a little bit of an introduction to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there's so much more. You know, I have... I, I, my database of the links between Edwards and Joseph Smith is as long as this. Hmm. But it's a separate, whole separate thing. I just have a few allusions to it in here. 
So, and there's a, there's a lot to it. Well, in this whole process, so I, I'd been working on this uh, for, let's say, two years, something like that. And I was telling a few people that I knew about it. They said, oh, you've got to write about this. You've got to publish this book. And I, the, the problem I had was two, well, threefold. One's time. But two was I just kept coming across more and more and more. And I felt like, it's like when I used to make movies. You know, a movie is never finished because you can always tweak it. And I felt like in a movie situation, you have a deadline. You say, okay, that's it, even though it's not perfect, right? And that's kind of how I do my books, too. I could spend another year on them to make them all perfect. But I want to get them out there because I want people to, be, to learn about these new uh, perspectives and just consider them, hopefully do more research on them. And so I had, I had that problem of it never ending. In fact, in the last two weeks, I found even more Edwards' allusions in the Book of Mormon. And it, it extends beyond the Book of Mormon to the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and Joseph's private writings as well. In his right. And so that's a, a never-ending thing that I, I finally had to say, okay, at this point, I'm going to do the book. But the third one was I knew I'd have a ton of resistance to this because there was the, the, the frame of the stone and the hat people, of course, say there's no way Joseph could have done all this. He, had, it, he was a blank slate. The Lord just wrote on it and told them what to say, right? Which I, I don't agree with but because you're, you're a, let's talk about type versus loose translation so type okay. is the words appeared on the stone or the urim and thummim whatever it is right and joseph just wrote or just read them right whereas loose translation is joseph used his own vocabulary to figure out certain things yeah and and there's also another distinction and that is that joseph said that the title page was a literal translation they didn't say that about the rest of the book. And so when they talk about tight and loose, I think you have, there's a range within the text as well. Some of it I think is more literal, like the title page, and some of it is more, um, kind of like Blake Osler talked about the expansion of the text. For example, I, I don't think King Benjamin used the words, the natural man is an enemy to God. I think he used, he expressed that concept and Joseph translated that into saying a natural man is an enemy to God because it was, it was an allusion actually to Jonathan Edwards. And that's what Jonathan Edwards said. Yeah. So people would, well, I give this comparison. So the Book of Mormon keeps talking about the law of Moses, but it never explains it, right? So if you're, let's say, I, I keep referring to China because that was my most recent experience living over there. So if a Chinese person picks up the Book of Mormon and reads it, it talks about the law of Moses, they've never heard of that before. They don't, is this a traffic law? Is this some kind of a, how the government's run? They have, you know, it's just a word for the law of Moses. They don't even know who Moses is. Yeah, they've never heard of the Bible. So in order to understand that reference in the Book of Mormon, it's an allusion to the Bible. You have to have the Bible to understand it, right? The Bible explains the law of Moses. So when King Benjamin said the national man is an enemy to God, he doesn't really explain it, but it's an allusion to Jonathan Edwards' sermon on that. He gave that, I, I put the whole sermon in the book because I wanted people to see how, how rich of an allusion that is. It's just a simple phrase, natural man is an enemy to God, but if you read it in, in light of what Edwards had expounded on that and explained it, then it has so much more meaning. Now what was Edwards' background? Was he Presbyterian? Well, he, some people say he was Calvinist, he, but he, he later said, well, don't hold me to anything John Calvin said, you know. He was kind of his own person, really. So just he, he was not person. Catholic. He didn't like the Catholics, of course. Nobody in, in that part of New England did, you know. And, and they had, um, he had his own church, his own kind of denomination. He was, this Great Awakening was just a revivalist kind of a thing, trying to get everybody to return to God. And, and, you know, I'm sure some, you know, doctrinal or historical expert could say exactly what denomination he was in. But I don't read his work that way at all, because I see him kind of, like he said, he, he inherited Calvinism, but he didn't want to be held to that, because he, he went far beyond that. And he was kind of his own person. And that's where, when I read it, you know, people would say, people like Gerald Givens would say, Oh, Jonathan Edwards was this kind of a person based on that sermon, you know, uh, the Angry God sermon or a few other things that he wrote. But that really confines him and pigeonholes him. I don't think he, he intended to be And that then way. Calvinism 
wish Steve Pineacre was here because he could tell me exactly. Yeah. That's once saved, always saved. Is that what that is? Yeah, I don't want to even try to describe Calvinism or, or Arminianism or any of that stuff because you get into a lot of doctrinal intricacies and distinctions that, to me, um, are maybe historically interesting, but they weren't interesting to me to understand Jonathan Edwards. And, and the reason is, I don't think Joseph Smith adopted Jonathan Edwards' theology at all. I think he used it as perspective. Edwards would explain the scriptures. In some cases, Edwards would say, well, the King James says this, but a better translation is this, you know. And he would do blending. Edwards would blend different passages together. Sounds like Adam Clark. Well, yeah, well, all of them do it. Every minister does it, right? Every sacrament meeting talk does it to some degree. But Edwards would have a very kind of a an erudite approach where he was using his own translations of some of these things. And so... Um, I mean, this brings up a whole, a whole other thing, especially because it seems like it opposes Brian Hales quite a bit with this whole, well, is Joseph Smith reading Adam Clark and Jonathan Edwards and this Dean guy you mentioned earlier um, and the late war? Like, is he just compiling... Just, you know, uh, I mean, I talked with Bill Davis, William Davis. Yeah. And he was like, you know, he talked about how Robin Williams was kind of a genius where he could pull out all these yeah, different sure. references and time together and said that's the, you know, while Robin Williams was kind of a comedic genius, Joseph Smith was a religious genius in that he could do the same sort of thing. Right. Um, and, but that, you know, then we get into the, but he couldn't compose a, le- a, a letter. Whatever. Well, which I think is just a bogus thing. I right. Mean, right after. Well, so he, does Davis. Yeah, he, well, he wrote a letter to Oliver Cowdery, who read the Joseph Smith papers, right after he finished the translation. And it's very articulate. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, he learned how His to write. His 1832 account is pretty bad, though. Pretty well, poor grammar. Well, grammar is a different thing. I mean, the, he didn't really learn grammar until he moved to Kirtland. And it, see, there's, there's, this is an interesting point, too, that some people have overlooked. If you look in the early revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, before they were changed, they're very much like the Book of Mormon, grammar-wise. Like, like it would say... Um, like the Book of Commandments? The Book of Commandments, yeah, okay. And, and some, we, there aren't very many that we have of the original handwritten ones. So the Book of Commandments was the first publication of some of them. But between the Book of Commandments and the, the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835, a lot of those early revelations were changed. To change um, which to who, for example. There was a lot of those kind of changes, mm-hmm. which also they did in the Book of Mormon. From 1830 to 1837, they made similar changes. And that's because Joseph moved to Kirtland. They had the School of the Prophets. Oliver Cowdery and um, who else was there? Well, Sidney Rigdon. Phelps, maybe, but also his other counselor, Frederick G. Williams. So they were educating Joseph more about grammar. And that's why, I think that's why he was... So Joseph could read all this Jonathan Edwards that he just couldn't pick up the grammar? Sure, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's right, well, that's how it is. I've had this, I have a friend who's an English professor at the U, and she says reading and writing are completely separate uh, disciplines. And they teach them separately, right? But even the way your mind works is completely separate. You can read all kinds of things, but you can't write unless you learn to write. And it, it, it doesn't transfer. Hmm. To some degree, it, obviously, it does a little bit. But you can read Jonathan Edwards or the New York Times or whatever. It doesn't mean you can write a coherent letter. Although, in this case, Joseph could write a coherent <laughs> letter. But, I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to have all the perfect grammar that you had mm-hmm. in the published material. And so, for Joseph Smith, he, he never liked to write. He always had a spokesman. And that's why Oliver Cowdery was one of the reasons he was the assistant president of the church, was to be the kind of the one writing, doing the writing on behalf of the first presidency. You had Sidney Rigdon doing some and Oliver Cowdery doing some. And so, for Joseph Smith to not be able to um, sit there and, and write out a long sermon. I'm, I'm told, I, I don't know the details, but from the church historians, that he only had one prepared sermon ever. 
And he gave over 200 sermons, and they were all extemporaneous. Well, William Davis says that Joseph was trained as a Methodist exhorter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so. I mean, he's got that whole laying well, down heads. And now everything. you're getting into the, one of the reasons I delayed writing this book or publishing this book, because I anticipated that critics would say, well, now you're proving that he was plagiarizing Jonathan Edwards. Exactly, right? yeah, exactly. I because I will tell you from yeah. our last interview, yeah. um, I don't go on Reddit very often, but once in a while I do, and then there was like, oh, can you believe this, Jonathan yeah. Neville, the, the, the logic leaps these apologists do. Yeah. And I, I mean, I chuckled. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that is... That is uh, a critical view of your work is oh, I understand. that, oh, he's, Joseph's plagiarizing all this yeah. stuff, and therefore the Book of Mormon is a natural, we've, we've come up with a naturalistic explanation for yeah, the Book of Mormon. Right, How right. do you respond to that? Well, two, twofold. One is I say any translator can only use the words in his lexicon, in his mind. So whatever, however, any translator, well, let me back up. Uh, these critics, let me give you an example. I think it was the CES letter, one of those, had an explanation of how Joseph um, plagiarized from the late war, for example. So I took their paragraph explaining that, and I Googled it to show how they plagiarized all these other sources. And the reason is, the fallacy of the plagiarism argument is it's a common language. You can't have a common language without borrowing from other sources you're familiar with. But this gets back to the lexicon of the translator. A translator can't write or say anything that he doesn't already know. I've translated things into French and back, and I can't use a French word that I don't know, right? So if I come across an English word, I'm not sure what it is in French, I have to look it up and learn the French word. Or if I'm reading French and there's a word I don't know, I have to look it up. But if I'm just translating from my own uh, knowledge, I know French pretty well, but I can translate most things in English into French and vice versa, but that's because I've learned it. But I can't come up with a word that I've never seen or heard before. It's like when you're, anytime you're studying a foreign language or even English, the first time you learn a word, all of a sudden you see it everywhere, right? And that's how the nature of language in our lexicons work. Or you buy a new car and then you see that car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when, when you have Joseph as a translator, he would naturally translate using the language he was familiar with. How else could he translate it, you know? He, he didn't translate it into French. He didn't know any French. He didn't translate it into Hebrew. He translated it into, into English. Mm -hmm. So the question all along has been, well, did Joseph know the, this terminology well enough to translate the Book of Mormon? And what I'm saying is, yes, he did. And he was prepared from a young age to do precisely that. Now. Uh, William, what was his last name again on the vision? Davis. William Davis. He thinks Joseph composed it, right? Based on the headlines or the monomic devices. Mm -hmm. And and I understand that that's a perspective. I mean, but, Bill, the one thing about William Davis is he says you don't have to not have faith. Um, right. Like, that's right. Like, Brian... Brian Hales hates William Davis. Yeah, I know. And, and William's like, you can do this in a faithful perspective. That's right. But most people who read William Davis don't read it with, from a faithful perspective. They read it from a naturalistic perspective, and this is how Joseph did it. Yeah, well, you know what's hilarious to me about that debate? To me, the stone in the hat and William Davis is the same thing. There's no difference. What do you mean? Because if Joseph read these words off a stone, then they were provided there by someone else. Right? If Joseph composed it like, or kind of uh, recited it, performed it the way William Davis says, then the, the words weren't part from an ancient text either. In other words, the stone in the hat doesn't come from an ancient text. It comes from a, this mist, this mysterious, incognito, spiritual, supernatural translator. It isn't from the text. And William Davis' approach is it's not from the text. But it could be based on faith or inspiration even. So I think they're saying the same thing. They're just saying, William Davis is saying that it was in Joseph's mind. The Sith people are saying it was on the stone. Well, That's, and the other thing, because in a lot of ways, you and William Davis are very similar in the fact that um, 
William says that Joseph was a lot more educated than people give yeah. him credit for, and yeah. you're saying the same totally. thing. Yeah, I agree. And, and yeah. he was trained as a Methodist exhorter, yeah. probably studied Jonathan yeah. Edwards as yep. well as whoever else were the yep. big people of the day. But there's a, a fundamental difference between me and William Davis. Okay. Or me and the Sith guys, what I call the Sith sayers. And, and that is that I think Joseph was translating the plates. I don't think he was imagining it or reading it off a stone. I think he had the plates in front of him. He would translate to the bottom of the plate, turn the plate, translate to the bottom of the plate. And that's one of the reasons, for they example... They weren't under a cloth? No. Not when he was translating. Hmm. He would keep them under a cloth because he, he wasn't allowed to show them to people. But not when he was translating. And that, this gets back to this issue of the evidence of the stone and the hat. But let's come back to that. But let me... I want to make sure this distinction is clear. Okay. Because... I think Joseph Smith had to have the plates when he was translating the plates. I don't, I don't even see how that's... So, because here's the thing. A lot of times with the old LDS art, and this is where the critics come by, yeah. you know, Joseph's got his finger yeah. like he's running across the page, yep. and everybody's like, there's no way that happened. They were hidden under a cloth, Joseph's looking in a, in a hat, blocking out all yeah. the light. No, I don't buy that you at all. You just reject that whole thing. Yeah, I do, because I think... I th so you like the old church art? Yeah, totally. Well, the problem with the old church art is he didn't he wasn't using the Urim and Thummim in most of them. He's just standing there looking at it. Oh. And but that makes sense too, because when he remember he said he copied the characters? Mm -hmm. How's he gonna copy the characters unless he's looking at the plates? Some people think he used like the graphite thing and rubbed it did a rubbing of the characters, which is possible. Maybe that's what he meant by copying them. But a more ordinary use of the term would be to actually look at the character and copy it, right? Mm -hmm. And so he, if he did a rubbing, let's say he might have done a rubbing, but typically a rubbing, you have extraneous marks and different things. So if you want to really study the characters, you have to copy them. And it's also interesting in the Book of Mormon, it says that these, uh, the interpreters enlarged the, the mind or whatever. I, I should have thought of that verse. But anyway... It's possible it worked like a magnifying glass, too, the Yerman Thummim, where it would magnify the characters, because I think it was Orson Pratt said they were very fine characters. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't be easy to read without some kind of magnification device. But I think Joseph Smith actually sat down behind a curtain with Martin Harris on the other side, or Emma, or Oliver Cowdery, until Oliver Cowdery was allowed to translate. That would have changed it. But um, And actually was going through the characters, because he had learned the characters. He said he studied them and translated the characters, right? So he learned the characters and then translated the text. And he used the Urim and Thummim because he had to, maybe as a magnifying glass for one thing, but also because it would give him a literal uh, interpretation of what that word meant. But that didn't, he couldn't just read what the literal interpretation was other than on the title page when it was a literal translation. But the rest of it, he had to kind of adapt to uh, our, our modern Christian or 1800s Christian terminology so that people could understand what it was saying. Um, but I, I think so. And, you know, they, they often said at the end of a translation session, he would come back and just resume where he was without having it read back. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what you would do if you were looking at the plates. You'd read to the bottom of the plate, okay, we reached the end of that plate, let's go take a break. Come back, start at the top of the next plate. He wouldn't have to have it read back. That's what a translator would do if he was translating from a, an existing document. So that's where I disagree with William Davis on his approach as well as anybody who believes in the stone and the hat stuff, that I think he was actually translating the plates. That's why, you know, you think about it, there's so many things that don't make sense with the stone on the hat. Because Moroni said, look, he was writing to the translator, Joseph Smith, and he said, don't touch the sealed portion, right? Well, why would he even have to tell him that if he wasn't looking at the plates anyway? And why would... Why would um, why would Moroni have to warn him not to open the seal if he wasn't looking at the plates? He, he should have said, don't let the stone read the sealed portion, you know? It, it just doesn't make sense. The other thing is when the Lord said, you have to translate the engravings on the plates of Nephi, what kind of a commandment is that? He didn't know what place he was reading according to the Sith sayers. He was just reading these words off the stone. So why would the Lord say, you have to translate these other plates? The stone would just tell him what to say. So the narrative, 
the stone in that narrative and William Davis's narrative don't make sense in light of what the revelations say. Now you can say there's all kinds of ways to use sophistry to say, well, the revelations were wrong or whatever, you know. But when you read what the revelations actually say, what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery actually said, there's no room in there for a stone in the hat at all. And so then you get into, well, where, what is the evidence of the stone in the hat? And that's what you were getting into a minute ago. So you had the critics, <laughs> the critic, including Richard, although he may be... Richard Bushman. Richard Bushman. You know, he, he was relying on what David Whitmer primarily, uh, and to some degree maybe Emma, although Emma's testimony is kind of self-contradictory and dubious to begin with, which we could get into if you want to talk about that. But, but primarily David Whitmer is the one who was talking about the stone in the hat over his long course starting in the late 1870s, early 1870s, I guess, for the next 10 or 15 years or so. And addressed to all believers? Is that the Addressed to all believers. That was one of his final publications. Mm -hmm. But he, he was talking about the stone in the hat experience. There's no doubt about it. And what I pointed out... Didn't he have his own stone? Uh, a lot of them did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if he ever claimed to, re to translate anything with it. I don't yeah. think he did. But as I pointed out, Joseph gave that stone to Oliver Cowdery. And that's one of the things the sissayers say is that, well, he gave it to Oliver Cowdery because he didn't need it anymore because he had finished translating the Book of Mormon. My attitude is he gave it to Oliver Cowdery because he didn't need to use it to help the faith of his followers by doing a demonstration. Remember, there were, there were accounts of people who asked Joseph for a revelation, and he would start dictating it, and they would say, no, we want you to use the stone, right? So the stone was like a, um, I don't know, a, a talisman or something that they needed to have faith in because they, they believed that these seer stones were important to receive revelation. Where Joseph didn't need them. He knew he didn't need them. But he used it anyway to kind of help the faith of the people he was giving revelations to. I think it was even uh, his brother asked him to use a seer stone on one occasion. When, well, didn't Hiram ask him to use it for the polygamy revelation? Yeah, that's, what I, that's the yeah. one I meant. Because Joseph said he knew it by heart. He could recite it any time. And, and Hiram said, no, use the seer stone. Well... So Joseph said, okay, I'll read it off that if you want. But he didn't need to because he knew it by heart. And he, there's a, a very interesting article that may or may not get published. I didn't write it. But it's about Joseph having a, a perfect memory, a photographic memory. And there's lots of evidence of it, not only in his own life, but also in the scriptures. And I wish I could talk about it, but we'll wait until that gets published. But it's... Um, you know, I've, I've heard people say... So there's say, an article coming out that says that Joseph had a photographic yeah, memory? Yeah, Okay. And, and but it's, it's, it's important to think about Joseph Smith's role as a prophet because, you know, I think I've opened one of my books with what President Oak said about President Nelson at the birthday party, and he said he's been around all the prophets and he's seen how the Lord has prepared him for mm -hmm. the position that they're in. Why would Joseph Smith be any different from that, you know? If, if the Lord knew he was going to be a translator of the Book of Mormon, as well as a receiver of revelations, why wouldn't the Lord prepare him to do that by giving him the education that he needed? Not a formal school education, but by reading this, the scriptures, the Bible, as well as the uh, Christian writings that were in his area. Um, so, but anyway, getting back to this, the premise for this whole thing, that was, I knew that was going to be an objection to this book which I thought, well, why hassle it? You know, I'll just keep this to myself and love the Book of Mormon. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jonathan Neville. In our next conversation, we're going to continue to talk more about his book, Infinite Goodness, and we're going to find out why he wrote the book. And, and this is one of my key reasons for publishing this book. The, the Jonathan Edwards connection puts the Book of Mormon squarely in Christian tradition. It's, it's part of Christianity. Because they, for the most part, evangelicals and, and uh, maybe even Catholics, probably not Catholics, but the non-Catholic Christians look to Jonathan Edwards as one of the great uh, spiritual leaders, right? If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.